folks. Welcome to Enough Y'all, the Real Talk podcast for intersectional allies and social justice academics. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Case, social psychologist and Appalachian academic with the passion for truth-telling, centering the soul's goals, and talking with my hands. In this season of the podcast, I explore the intricate and tangled web that is the psychology of whiteness, systemic racism, and white anti-racism with a host of brilliant activists, teachers, scholars, and friends. If you enjoy the show, check out my course on white anti-racism, as well as free resources at drkimcase.com. Okay, folks, you're in for a treat. Dr. Luis Rivera is an associate professor of psychology and director of the Rutgers Implicit Social Cognition Lab at Rutgers University, Newark. His experimental research investigates the implicit social cognitive processes that underlie stereotyped attitudes and how these processes shape the self, identity, and health of stigmatized individuals. His research has implications for stigmatized individual social identities, the expression of implicit and explicit stereotyping, prejudice and discrimination, and the presence and persistence of health disparities between members of socially advantaged and disadvantaged groups. This past year, Luis served as American Association for the Advancement of Science Congressional Science and Technology Policy Fellow in the office of U.S. Senator Ron Wyden for Oregon. Luis also happens to be my partner in social justice, my reluctant selfie friend, and my spissy husband in our professional association. And yes, my real husband knows that. Okay, welcome, Luis. Hi, thank you for having me. All right, just to kick us off, can you give us a sense of who you are and your intersectional social location that you would be willing to share? Sure, yeah. So again, thanks for having me, Kim. So I, I grew up in the Bronx, um, in New York City, in the South Bronx, New York City. And I am Puerto Rican. Uh, my mom grew up in Puerto Rico and moved to New York at the age of 16. And she, not too many people know this, but she was actually the first person, the first Latina uh, student in her high school up in Buffalo, New York. And she, after graduating, uh, she moved down to the Bronx and established herself and her family in the Bronx. So I have deep roots in the South Bronx, but also deep roots in Puerto Rico because my outside of my immediate family, uh, my extended family are in Puerto Rico and we have a fairly close relationship with them. And, you know, with everything that's going on in Puerto Rico currently and in the past, has kept our family very, very close and very tight. Um, so that's a big part of who I am. It's a big part of how I identify. And, and therefore, it's a big part of how I see the world and how I see my work. Um, and as you noted, uh, my work mainly focuses on implicit social cognition or implicit bias. Um, so, yeah. Okay, that's perfect segue. I just wanted you to maybe tell us what is this thing that we hear so much about mm-hmm. implicit bias and what the research findings maybe tell us. I love to talk about this in part because, of course, this is what I do, and I've been doing this since graduate school, and I think the rest of my career, I'm always going to 
do this kind of work because there's so many questions that we still don't have answers to. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But I think the, the one thing that I definitely want to, to talk about is this question about what are implicit biases or what is implicit bias. And I, the, the main reason why I want to talk about this and why it's so important to talk about is because what we're seeing today in this conversation, this countrywide, worldwide conversation about racism is that a lot of the terms that we are talking about are kind of being used interchangeably. You often hear in this conversation systemic racism being interchanged with implicit bias, right? or white supremacy being interchanged with, with implicit bias. And I totally get it. Makes a lot of sense. And yes, they are, in the, at the most general level, they are very related, but they're very, very distinct, right? So implicit bias um, is a, it's an area of research. It's a term that actually was born and came out of social psychologists. So I'm a social psychologist, and social psychologists are very, very interested in understanding what's happening in people's minds. So when we talk about implicit bias, what we're talking about at the most basic level are people's thoughts. Right. Uh, more formally speaking, uh, they are what we call learned associations. But basically, at the most basic level, they are thoughts. But they're like a unique kind of thoughts because when people think about thoughts, you can kind of somebody ask you, "Oh, tell me your thoughts on this," or "Tell me your thoughts on this issue." Right? You can come up with you know feelings and ideas and beliefs that you have related to an issue. But these thoughts are unique in that people are not necessarily aware that they have these thoughts. Right? And often these thoughts uh, uh, often come up and pop up in our minds very quickly without even us being aware or being able to control these thoughts, right? So what makes implicit bias unique as well is that they are also very culturally driven. So what that means is that some implicit biases that we see based on the research we've done here in the United States may not pop up in other cultures right around the world or may not be as strong in other cultures around the world. Or rather, these implicit biases are definitely social, as I noted. And some of the most popular ones that we have studied in the literature is the association or the thought that Black people and Black men in particular are strongly associated with criminality, mm-hmm. right? That is a very popular associational thought that we study very deeply in this literature because it's very fascinating. There are a lot of questions that we can ask about that association or that thought. Another one that we're doing more work on right now is the association or the thought that men are more likely to be in STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, more likely than women. And that particular association between STEM uh, and women versus men is one of the associations that vary across cultures. Because in this culture that we live in, if I take United States at the level, that's the level uh, at which I'm talking about here as a country, there are less women represented in STEM than men are, and therefore that thought, that STEM is more likely to be dominated and and filled with men is a much stronger uh, thought that we have here than in another country, some countries in Europe, where that thought is not as strong because there's so many women in STEM. So the point there is that culture drives a lot of our implicit biases. And ultimately, what implicit biases do is that they can affect the way we judge other people and the way we act towards other people.
Let me just compare it quickly to explicit biases, right? So explicit biases is what we are seeing reported more and more today. So when we see that uh, white people, for example, are saying, hey, you know, now I believe that police brutality is an issue within the black community. Now I believe that black people are targeted by uh, uh, these negative attitudes, these prejudices, these, this hate. Now I believe black people should be given opportunities and people of color should be given opportunities. Those changes in attitudes that people report, that people tell us about, that's more about their explicit attitudes, right, compared to their implicit attitudes, right? Whereas implicit attitudes, again, or implicit biases are those that people are not necessarily aware of. The other thing that I want to kind of going back to the, the start of my response is that implicit biases, therefore, is very different again, related, but very different from like systemic racism, right? Because systemic racism, when we talk about systemic racism in general, we're talking about the forms of discrimination that we observe within the structure and society that we live, right? So a lot of folks are talking about health inequities and how health inequities disproportionately targets and negatively targets Black, Latinx people, Indigenous people compared to white people. So some examples are that of that are that Black people have higher levels of hypertension. And this is not because of genetics. This is not because of race. It's because of where we live that Black people are more likely to experience hypertension compared to white people. That Black and Latinx people are more likely to have poor health care coverage compared to white people. Um, in the domain of criminal justice, that Black and Latinx people are overrepresented in the criminal justice system compared to white people. In education, that Black and white people are less likely to finish high school, are less likely to have bachelor's degrees, et cetera, compared to white people. Those are systemic structural evidence of discrimination, right? And that's what's happening when we look at this higher level, more broader level of society, whereas implicit bias, again, from, you know, in terms of how we study this, is what's happening in the minds of individuals. So they're very distinct, but they're also related. How are they related? Well, we know they're related because the kinds of, uh, of evidence that we see of implicit bias is very much aligned with what we are observing structurally, right? So, so at the very least, we can say that structural racism, for example, can affect people's thoughts, again, implicit biases, and that in turn, the people who live in these structures can then, via these implicit biases, both promote, maintain, exacerbate structural racism. They're very intertwined. Yes. But one point you made I want to amplify a little bit is that you can be a white person saying, oh, I see police are violent toward black men's bodies and black women. And now I see that this is happening and you can still have implicit bias. Those things can be happening at the same time. Right. And this is one of the main findings, going back to your original question about what are the main findings in this literature of implicit bias. One of the main findings and the, uh, uh, that people often, both my colleagues and, and, and folks who, who don't really think about this stuff, they're often surprised by. Generally speaking, implicit biases 
tend to not be related to explicit biases, right? So you can be that person who has good intentions, right? You want, you are out there, you're out there processing, you're part of the conversation in large part because you want an egalitarian, fair world. You want Black people to have opportunities, right? You have positive attitudes. You know, you don't believe you have a prejudiced bone in your body. Those people often uh, uh, who have these good intentions, they often do the studies or be part of the studies that we do on implicit bias, and they show strong levels of implicit bias. And that's what we mean by that there's no, there tends to be no relation between implicit bias and explicit bias. That is one of the main findings over and over again in this literature. And because it's a main finding in this literature, one of the things that we're trying to figure out is why, right? We have some speculation and we have some data to, to, to support some of the speculation, but we're trying to figure out why. So one of the reasons, I'll tell you one of the main reasons that we are finding over and over again is that when you ask people about their biases, it is very, you know, people, you know, pe people can, people are, trying their best to tell you how they truly feel, right? About black people, about gay people, about women and, you know, women as the next president of the United States. And because they have good intentions, they pretty much, most people are gonna say, sure, a woman could be president, sure, black people can be in STEM, sure, Latinx people could be also in STEM, et cetera, et cetera, right? But because of systemic racism, because of white supremacy, which I want to also make a link between that and implicit bias, because of these structural forms, these broad levels of racism, sexism, et cetera, and because the way our minds operate, often our minds feed into or are very shaped by the structures and the cultures that we live in, right, where we often don't have control over how those manifestations get represented or are, are marked or are, are stamped in our minds. So one thing that people often ask, and it's a really good question, are we born biased? Right? That's a really good question, and I think it's a fair question to ask, and we will continue to, 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 we should continue to ask the question and answer this question. So any social psychologist you talk to and anyone who does this kind of research will say, no, we are not born biased. Uh, however, as a social cognitive psychologist, a person who studies what's happening in the mind, what we do know is that our minds are very fascinating and interesting mechanisms, right? We navigate, we live in the society and we could do so fairly well because we can make very quick decisions about what we see in society. Right? So the way I like to think about implicit biases versus explicit biases, the analogy that I like to give is in the domain of driving. Right? When we go out every morning to drive to our workplaces, there's a lot of actions and behaviors that we are engaging in that are very automatic, that are very implicit. So for example, stoplights. Right? We don't have to think you know, very carefully about what a green light, what a red light means, because we know quickly and automatically what that means. We don't have to think about, you know, when do we hit the brake pads and versus where we, you know, want to hit the, the speeding pad, right? Because we know what are the conditions under which we can do that very quickly. However, when we're driving, we often see 
warning signs. We often see construction signs that we do have to take a little bit more effort, a little bit more control to read those things because those things can then affect the way we get to work, unlike red light, yellow light, green light. So, so that distinction between that kind of automatic behavior and that kind of control behavior when we're driving is also similar to the way implicit versus explicit biases are operate in our minds, right? We have been taught by our cultures what these driving uh, uh, signals and messages are that we have just adopted them and taken into our minds and our minds are so remarkable that we can quickly make these decisions about our actions and the things that we do in our society whereas there are other things that we need to think more carefully about. Similarly, because we have been taught over time in the United States about slavery. We have been taught about other forms of discrimination and the way in which people have been treated over time, Black people, Indigenous people, Latinx people, those ways in which they have been taught have been embedded in our minds in such a strong way that we automatically make these associations with these people. We have these implicit biases towards these people. We learn about these groups. We uh, uh, become friends with these groups. We realize that those stereotypes, that those biases about these groups are not true. And therefore, when people ask us, hey, what do you think about Black, you know, Indigenous, Latinx people, our responses tend to be different from the kinds of more automatic, uh, implicit biases that are learned uh, uh, through uh, the way we have treated groups in the past. And that's because I assume we're asking people to tell us it from their consciousness, their conscious awareness, what they think and believe. And so they're going to call on what they know they think and believe versus something that's unconscious. Implicit and explicit is very social psychology. Unconscious versus sort of what we're aware of that we believe. And what we really truly like know at a deep level is what we value and believe, which is equality and treat everybody fairly and all those things. But that can be a really strong belief system and you can still have these things that you're not aware of. Absolutely, absolutely. And if I may, I also want to take uh, a moment to connect implicit bias to white supremacy, right? So white supremacy at the most basic level is this very racist belief that white people are, you know, superior to, to people of other ethnicities, of other, you know, other ethnic racial groups. Well, this idea, this very basic level idea that, you know, that, that white people are much more superior to other people are directly related to the kind of evidence that we see in the implicit bias literature, not the explicit bias literature, because again, most people are now saying white people are the same as black people, are the same as Latinx people. But in the implicit bias literature, we see that white people are strongly associated with being at the most basic level good, right? Relative to Black, Latinx people, they're good, they're smarter, they're more beautiful, they're more likely to be leaders, they're more likely to be in STEM, they're not likely to be criminal, right? So those manifestations that we see in the implicit bias literature perfectly align with the notion of white supremacy. That again, is that racist belief that white people are superior to other people of other ethnicity and races, which again is rooted in deep history, uh, uh, and not just history, but also manifestations that we see today in the ways in which we, in which we treat black people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we have a very strong 
trend or we're in a moment where the diversity training of the day, a lot of it focuses on implicit bias and you're very well aware of it, obviously. There are some great things about that. There's some critiques about that. And so for people listening that might be in positions to invite people in to do trainings, I, I would love to hear what you think about what implicit bias training brings, what maybe it needs to have that maybe are some gaps currently we have in the training so that people are thinking about bringing someone in to do that kind of training, what should they look for? That's a very good question. And, and one that, as you noted, is, um, is an area, it's a, it's a strategy, if you will, that a lot of companies, right? A lot of organizations are bringing in, adopting into their, uh, 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 cultures, their environments within their organizations and cultures to try to deal with implicit bias. And, I, you know, I, first I will say I applaud them. I applaud them for trying. Here's a quick response, and then I want to give you a slightly more elaborate response. And you're hearing it from someone who is trained by the folks who have done the original work on implicit bias, someone who continues to do the work on implicit bias, and as part of this work is also trying to understand how can we reduce implicit biases at the moment, there is no strategy, there is no training method that will reduce implicit bias. We have a nice chunk of studies, a nice chunk of experiments that show that we can, quote unquote, reduce implicit, bi implicit bias for a moment, but even an hour later, even a day later, those levels of implicit bias that momentarily were reduced go back to baseline. They go back to the ways in which people express these implicit biases before the methodology. So let me give you an example. In our lab, one way in which we observe this is that when we show people, call them role models, call them uh, exemplars, call them mentors of individuals from these underrepresented groups, black people, gay people, who have had a really cool success story in society. When we show people those stories, and then right after that measure implicit bias, we tend to see a reduction in implicit bias. So that's great, right? That's great. That says something about the importance of representation of all groups and all individuals from all groups. The problem, as I noted already, is that you bring those very same people back to the study one day later, that benefit that we saw after exposing them to these quote-unquote role models is gone. So what that says, that says to us is that implicit biases are sensitive to some things, but if the goal of these trainings, if the goal of these workshops is to reduce implicit bias because the belief is that these implicit biases is partly what's causing systemic forms of racism, we now know that we don't have any long-term benefits to these kinds of trainings in terms of reducing implicit bias. So then the question becomes, what do we do? You know, is there anything that we can do to deal with these implicit biases? And the answer is, yeah, there are things that we can do. We don't know of anything that works in terms of lowering implicit biases, but the thing that we do know is that although most people exhibit these implicit biases, these implicit biases for everyone does not relate to what they do in their actual behaviors and their actions that they engage in in their daily lives. And what that tells us is that something is going on between 
the implicit bias in one's mind and the actions that people are engaging in. And what's going on in between then becomes super important to us because maybe we cannot reduce the implicit bias and we don't know how to reduce it at the moment. We're still working on that. But what can we do to intervene? What can we do to kind of break that link between implicit bias and actions? So one thing that we do know works uh, that's important is that people have to be motivated and, 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 and engage and recognizing the possibility that implicit biases can affect the way they act. If people are aware of that, right, and they know that that link could potentially be there for them at the individual level, then maybe we can cut that link, right? Maybe we can sever that link and not allow those implicit biases to, to affect their actions. So, you know, one way to do so, I think, at the organizational level, right, because a lot of these organizations are engaging in these implicit bias trainings, is to look at the numbers, right? To look at the data in terms of who's being represented in positions of power uh, in these organizations, right? Because if we want to dismantle white supremacy, if we want to dismantle systemic racism, you know, having the conversation about, uh, about implicit bias, sure, that's important, bringing awareness of what is implicit bias. I think that's wonderful. As a social psychologist, it's wonderful that so many people are talking and thinking about these things. I think it's wonderful that people are just having these hard conversations. But the true evidence, the true uh, way to dismantle uh, systemic racism and white supremacy is to share power. You gotta share power. Right? You have to uh, uh, remove the people who are in power, who are white, and give those opportunities, give, those, give access to people who are not typically represented, and give them opportunities in those positions of power. You want to dismantle white supremacy? You want to do away with systemic racism? There's only one way to do so. Share the power. That's it. Thank you for that. That sums it right up. I want to add, too, share power give people access, and then when they're in those positions of power, support them in bringing their full selves to those positions. Not to just be another person in that position that then maintains the system, right? Representation with the full support to change what the system is doing, I guess. Yeah. If we're giving people advice about implicit bias training they might bring in, maybe one of the things to look for is not only raising awareness that implicit bias exists, but also giving people practice about how to break the cycle between implicit bias and their own actions, like ways they can cognitively intervene in their own reflection before they take actions. Precisely. And, you know, that, that, this idea, this notion is rooted in, if you think about therapy, in the therapy circles, in the therapy space, I think people, I myself included, have engaged in therapy because there are certain ways in which we have thought about the world, the way we have thought about ourselves in relation to the world that has affected our relationships, right? Sometimes we, you know, it's hard to change those beliefs about how we think about ourselves in relation to the world. Uh, but what we can do is learn strategies, right? What we can do is learn ways in which we can say, gauge in either information that counters uh, the way we think of ourselves in the world that in turn can then affect the way we relate to other people. There are strategies, there are some empirically based strategies that we can learn to prevent these implicit biases from 
shaping the actions that we engage in, whether those actions are at the interpersonal level, so me engaging with another person from another group, or even what's happening in the boardrooms of organizations and companies. One of the ways in which we can engage in the strategy in the case of organizations is we need to bring to the table who is represented in these positions of power, right? We need to ask the question, let's, let's get the data. Let's get the data in front of us and let's see how power is distributed within these organizations. And you're more likely to see white people in positions of power compared to non-white people. And part of the reason why that is the case is because the people who have placed these white people in these positions of power in part is because of their implicit biases, right? Going back to what I said before, white people, according to the literature on implicit bias, are more likely to be smart, are more likely to be leaders, and et cetera. So those are the people who you are going to therefore put in these positions of power. If they are driven by implicit biases, which we know that that is part of what drives these kinds of decisions, then you're going to see the overrepresentation of white people compared to non-white people. Once you have these data in front of you, let's acknowledge that these people are overrepresented and then let's have a sobering moment, right? Let's say, let's acknowledge that this is happening in part because of our implicit biases, which we have just learned from a training what these implicit biases are. And now let's engage in changing this. Let's strategically and intentionally engage in changing this by setting up programs by, you know, identifying non-white people uh, to put in those positions of power, right? So again, the bottom line is that we want to share the power and give more power to non-white people compared to white people in these organizations and in these companies. That is being intentional. That is, that is using that motivation, to con that motivation to change discrimination, which is uh, an area of research in social psychology, is the motivation to control one's prejudices and one's discriminatory behavior. That is the way in which it can take place and it can manifest at the, organization, at the organizational and company levels. It sounds like moving from reactive to proactive as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. None of this is... It's, it's, again, it's really fascinating to me how in this discussion that we're having about race, ethnicity, race relations, racial equity, etc., we're not talking about new things here. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, the literature on implicit bias as a science is relatively new, right? And it's pretty, I think it's pretty cool. But the ideas about how we deal with it is not dramatically different from what we've been trying to do for a long time. The difference is that now we are talking about putting people in power who have not been there who are committed to making and engaging and incorporating these differences, these, and intentionally uh, making a difference. While white people are still in power, we're not gonna see that. How do I know that? Look at the past. And one thing that, social, that psychologists in general know is that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And if we want to change past behavior, we need to change the people who are in the positions gauging in those behaviors and those actions that are perpetuating white supremacy in these organizations and in these companies. What do white people need to know about whiteness? 
Yeah, so that's a very good question. And again, I will, you know, the way I think about this is through the lens of implicit bias. I think the one thing that I would share with white people who um, are asking that question, what should I think about my whiteness, is that what we know is that the color of your skin, right, these observable physical features of who you are and what makes you white, it signals a host of messages. It sends a lot of messages to people uh, who you interact with. What does it signals? It basically signals that relative to non-white people, you are associated and you have a host. It's like assumed that you have a host of positive attributes. And because your skin tone, your whiteness signals these positive attributes, therefore it confers upon you white privilege, right? So from our perspective, what white privilege means to us is what these signals are, these, these implicit biases, these implicit positive attributes that are associated with you because you are white. We can think about different sources, if you will, of white privilege. From our perspective is these automatic thoughts, these automatic positive thoughts that people have about white people and that they get activated in people's minds through your whiteness through your skin tone and what that signals. And those implicit positive biases lead to action and interactional behavior that is positive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it's these positive attributes, the basic, the basic idea of being good, uh, being smarter, being more beautiful, being leader is what perpetuates white supremacy. Any advice you have for white people who are working on being anti-racist? Yeah, I would love to actually get back to to this question about what does it mean to address systemic racism? Because I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of good conversations, but I think the message is very clear, right? The message here and how do we, what, is, what does it mean to address white supremacy? What does it mean to deal with systemic racism? It just simply means to share your power, right? Share your power with people who historically and presently do not have that power. That hurts, right? We, one of the things that we know over and over again from the social psychological, the psychological literature and the sociological literature as well is that when people's power is threatened, they do some crazy stuff to keep their power, Right. And this is why it's it's hard. This is why it's hard. This is why there's so much, you know, so many actions that people are engaging in to maintain and want to keep that power because it is difficult. But that's what it means to deal to address systemic racism share your power. So I actually see that, you know, I'm a professor at Rutgers University, and I, I would say that the area in which I have had personal experiences with dealing with systemic racism is in the hiring of non-white people in my department. As the only brown person in my department, believe it or not, as the only brown person in my department, I'm often asked to serve on different committees. So I have served on these uh, hiring committees. As chair of the search committee, part of my job is to bring strategies to the search committee about how we can be more effective in trying to recruit people of color. And one of my colleagues who is a white colleague who's a professional friend and whose work I really respect 
came to my office one day and said, you know, I noticed that uh, uh, you are bringing forth these ideas that we have never seen before. And I think it's really impressive that you are pushing us to do this. And my response, we have a deep conversation, but my response to him and as it relates to this conversation that we're having today is that if we are committed to dealing with systemic racism in the academic institution, it is not my job as the sole brown person to dismantle systemic racism. It is the job of the people who both create it and are maintaining systemic racism to do the job. White people have created systemic racism. It is your responsibility to undo systemic racism if you are truly committed. What I'm helping you to do is I'm giving you the tools. I'm helping you with the tools that you can use to undo systemic racism in the form of how we continue to hire white people in positions, in academic uh, positions in, at the university level. And those happen in all the contexts, right? All workplace yeah. contexts. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We have to share power. Dr. Rivera, thank you for being here today and especially giving us such a good insight on what is bias and what we need to do. Thank you for having me today, Kim. Thank you for listening to this episode of Enough, y'all. If you want to learn more, please visit drkimcase.com to sign up for my newsletter, find free resources, and check out my 12-week course on white anti-racism in action with over 30 podcast episodes like this one. Until we meet again, stay scrappy for truth and justice.